Hey, hey, welcome to the Wildscast. Wow, I just finished an unbelievable conversation with Rabbi Avraham Aryeh Trugman, and he is the second in our three-part series on authenticity and divinity of the Torah. What indications are there that this Torah, that we have our Judaism is, is real and that it comes from a higher place? We talked last week with Rabbi Joshua Berman, got a little more of an academic perspective. Today, we're going to get a little more of a mystical and spiritual perspective. We got heavy into the idea of gematria, that certain words and letters in the Torah bespeak something deeper. How do you find that? Is just just a joke? Is it a cutesy little thing that this letter means that and that word means that and it is equivalent to this? How can we actually find divinity, authenticity in the Bible? And he has such incredible analogies and metaphors where he talked about the depth and the deeper that you go into. And this is one of the challenges, actually, in our day and age, where we have such a cursory, superficial understanding of things, especially when it comes to our Judaism. What he was saying, and you'll hear this, is that in order for us, if you really want to see authenticity, if you really want to see historicity and realness of the Torah, you got to get deeper. You got to look at the Torah under a magnifying glass. We talked about the different ways of understanding the depth of the Torah and that it, it seems sometimes, oh, you you know, it's either a rational approach to Judaism or a mystical approach. One can't, they can't both be true. He really dispels that misperception by explaining how the Torah can be understood on multiple levels if you study it deeply. And that's really one of the things that comes out. If you're really serious about finding authenticity and divinity in Judaism, then you've got to learn it not surface deep. You got to really get into it. We also spoke about music. He went through the way that modern day physicists believe the world came into existence and how music is connected to that. Why is music really explained for the first time to me why music is so powerful. One of the other things we spoke about is this idea, what's called in Hebrew, Masa Avot Siman Labanim. There is this tradition that whatever happened to the patriarchs, to the matriarchs, the lives of these great biblical personalities that we study in the Torah every week, that the things that happen to them are sort of revisited upon us. And I was always troubled. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean we have no free will? Like everything that happened in the Bible is just going to keep replaying itself out in Jewish history. Well, where is my human agency? Where, where are my own Where's the ability for me to make my own personal decisions in life? Or am I just sort of living out some pre-scripted, you know, um, you know, book that was already written already? Like, what does that mean that what happened in the Torah is just, that's what's, that's what's going to be? You know, what about my own personal decisions? So we got into that very important discussion as well. For those of you unfamiliar with Rabbi Trugman, he has been for over 40 years in the field of Jewish education. He's the founding a founding family member of Moshav Meor Modi'in back in 1976, and he's been teaching thousands of students from all over the world for many, many years. He is now in charge of what's called, he's the director of Or Chadash, New Horizons in Jewish Experience, which is a dynamic program and has got a huge following on Twitter, Instagram, on his YouTube channels. I really encourage you not only to listen in to this conversation, but to buy any one of his over 20 books and his music. He actually writes, composes music. It's a fascinating Renaissance kind of rabbi. Take a listen. Okay, welcome to the Wildscast and welcome Rabbi Trugman. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Rabbi Avraham Aryeh Trugman. It's such an honor and a pleasure to have you. 
My pleasure. Thank you for being with us. So I don't know if you had a chance to hear the first conversation. We're doing this three-part series on the authenticity or divinity of the Torah. And my first conversation on this topic was with Rabbi Joshua Berman, who is um, both an academic and a rabbi. And he essentially argues that understanding the cultural context of the time and the setting of the Torah allows us to see the divinity um, within the Torah, because the entire ancient Near East, where all the Bible stories take place, was dominated by this very strict class system of kings and rulers and everyone else under them who served them. And along comes the Torah, which stands strictly against all that. Torah emphasizes equality um, of all people created in the one image of God. So, you know, what human being argues, Rabbi Berman, in those times could have created such a system and drafted such a document that emphasizes the equality and the humanity of all people. You know, he wrote this book, Created Equal, how the Bible broke with ancient political thought. So I, I'm sure you agree with that assertion, but your approach is very different. You, you and your amazing writings and teachings like to emphasize that besides the Torah being a book, a guidebook of life, a guidebook to life through all of these great laws, the Torah is also one giant code of interconnectivity. And that when you break down the words and the phrases and the and, and the sentences, the psukim of the Torah, and even its symbols, it enables us to see some infinite design. Can you give us some examples? Uh, maybe just expand on this, this idea of interconnectivity that we can we can see God, if you will, in the text of the Torah through the very letters and phrases of the Bible, of the Hebrew Torah. Great question. First of all, I 100% agree with the idea of one level of seeing the Torah, the, the break from the culture of the time. We have a very, very important midrash that uh, Abraham, Abraham, the first Jew, and what we call the father of monotheism. So in the Torah, he's called Avram Ha'ivri. Avram the Hebrew, and it's explained on a simple level. The word for Hebrew in uh, in Hebrew hmm. is uh, from the root to cross over, over. And so he was born in Ur Kazdim, which is today's Iraq, and he crossed over the Euphrates River, a major demarcation in the ancient world. And he came to Israel. So he crossed over this physical border. But the Midrash says on a deeper level, he's called the Hebrew, the one who crosses over, because he crossed over a red line of the way the entire world was operating at that time, especially mm -hmm. according to idol worship. And he crossed over and he stood on one side of the world and everyone else stood on the other side of the world. So there's no doubt that the Torah is, in today's language, is a revolutionary and radical departure from how the world was then. But according to your question, we want to see much more than that. And I would start by 
telling people that we have a system of learning called Pardes. Pardes mm -hmm. actually means orchard, but it's a symbol. It's uh, it's the four letters of Pardes stand for the P is for Pshat, the simple literal storyline of the Torah. The R or the Resh is Remez, are the almost infinite hints and allusions in the letters of the Torah, which hopefully I'll be able to explain more as we continue. The Dalet or the D of Pardes is for Drosh. That's the symbolic, allegorical, metaphorical level of understanding the Torah. And the S or the, the Samach is Sod, the Kabbalistic, mystical, secrets of the Torah. So every single word in the Torah, every verse, every story, every commandment is understood on many different levels. And they're all operating uh, in interconnectedness with each other, mm -hmm. in uh, interinclusion, the simple storyline, but beneath the surface, there are quite literally an infinite amount of allusions and hints to deeper understandings of the text. And then we get in the whole symbolism and the allegories and the metaphors. And then we go into what's called the, the mystical understandings of the Torah. And so therefore, what appears to be a, a simple text is is far from that. If we kind of like bump that up a bit, we have another expression, shivim panim Torah, 70 faces to the Torah. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that there are multiple perspectives of every verse, every story, every mitzvah in the Torah. But even more than that, uh, I actually wrote a whole book about this, that when we say 70 faces to the Torah, we can see in the words of the sages that they had 70 methods. Now, 70 is not an exact number. It's a symbolic number. Mm -hmm. 70 methodologies that they used to unearth uh, the, the inner dimensions of the Torah. And so, you know, and if I if I can just jump in, the, the 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 reason this is just so elucidating is because to me, and I think to a lot of our listeners, is because often we, I want to say fight with each other, but we's like, oh, this is the this is one way of understanding Torah or the other way, and what you're suggesting is they could all be true, meaning the yes. simple shot, which is the simple understanding of the of the storyline, and then the metaphorical. And then eventually, you know, the hints, and um, I, I mixed up the order, and then eventually Sod, which is the Kabbalah, they're not contradicting each other. They're not exclusive of one another. In other words, they're all, they're all at the same time true, because, you know, as long as they don't conflict with each other, you know, right. it, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure there are instances where the, the simple reading of the text might go up against a certain metaphorical reading of the text, or a Sod interpretation of the text could go up. But generally speaking, what you're saying now is that they're different layers, like an onion, and you can understand it on all these levels. 
and and just because you're more rationally oriented doesn't mean that the more mystical way of understanding it is wrong or the way you're more mystically oriented that the rational way of understanding is just different levels exactly and in fact really like a big word in today's society is holism and so really to study the torah properly we have to give uh, honor and weight and credence to all those different levels because if we're only learning the torah on, on the let's call it the kabbalistic level we're missing something huge and the opposite if we're only learning it on the simple storyline we're we're missing like 99 percent of it so we we have to approach the torah with all of these things in mind and of course the more we learn torah then we can get from the different commentaries rashi has a certain way of looking at the torah the ramban has a different way the Ebn Ezra has a different way. The Zohar has a different way. And like you said, which is very, very important, they're, they're not contradictory. They make a holistic picture. But then every once in a while, you do have conflicts. Many, many times the Ramban disagrees with Rashi. And so we'll say, well, which one is right? But this is probably one of the most important ideas of, of, of learning, especially the Talmud, is that, and, and Jewish law, because let's say in the Talmud, there's a question about Jewish law, and there's six different opinions that are given. And in the end, whether it's in the Talmud or later commentaries, it's decided what the law is. So you might ask, well, what do we need all those other opinions for? We just decided that the law is like this. So let's forget all these other opinions. But we don't learn like that. We learn that each one of those perspectives, even if they're not chosen as the Jewish law, have a certain point of truth to them, have a certain redeeming quality to them. So the same thing when just learning the five books of Moses, the Chumash. Even if you have disagreements between commentaries, it's not like, okay, I choose Rashi, and I'm not going to give any credence to what Ramban says. We don't learn like that. Everyone has this perspective, and that's why this uh, phrase, 70 faces of the Torah, is so critical to understand. This is what... In Hebrew, it's called harchavat hadat, like a, a broad, a broad consciousness that is able to hear different ideas and integrate them in a overall understanding of the text. Yeah, yeah. wholesome. I like the way you know, in terms of the word wholesome, used. The, the number seventy. I know this is a tangent. Now we'll get back to, but the number seventy you said is really purely symbolic. It's not like there are 70 explanations for each. Is 70 because there is a, uh, an idea in Jewish tradition that there are 70 nations of the world, even if there are other more than 70, but that's sort of the classic number. How did 70 become so significant? Okay, so here you, you, you mentioned the idea of things being interconnected. So here we can just take one example 
the number mm-hmm. 70. <laughs> when we say shivim ponim Torah, 70 faces the Torah, like I said, it's not considered exact. In fact, the Arizal, the great Kabbalist of Sfat 500 years ago, said there are 600,000 faces to the Torah. Because according to tradition, we have 600,000 letters in the Torah. And in the Torah itself, it says when we came out of Egypt, there was there were 600,000 what are, are considered root souls. And so the number 70 is it's actually in this week's portion. There's an expression from the Alter Rebbe the founder of the Chabad movement, to live with the times. What did he mean by that? Is that we should look in the Torah portion of the week or Mm. the the holiday that is coming up and see like what's happening in the world. And it's, for anyone who does this, it's absolutely amazing. (laughs) You can just even look at the news and sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, this is like a reflection of what the Torah is talking about. So in this week's Parsha, it says specifically that Yaakov came down to Egypt with 70 souls. He came down with 70 souls. And that number appears over and over again. You mentioned already in in the Parsha of Noah, after the flood and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people began to spread. So it's counted that there were 70 nations. We have a tradition that those 70 nations have 70 languages. There are 70 souls that went down to Egypt. Later, Moshe appointed 70 elders. And those 70 elders later became the members of the Sanhedrin, our high court. So here we see the number 70 over and over and over again. And I'll mention that the the number 70 is the numerical value of the word sod, secret. Mm. So you could ask, well, why did if, if they're looking for a symbolic number, why 70? Well, mm-hmm. because there, there were 70 nations that are listed in the Parsha of Noah. There are 70 souls who went down. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. But nonetheless, the term 70 faces to the Torah, if they're looking for a symbolic number, they could have picked 60 or 80 or 90. Mm-hmm. The secret is because the word for secret, sod, is 70. And so that's one of the reasons. So let, let's stay on that for a minute then. You're, you're, you're bringing up what's classically known as gematria, that every Hebrew letter you know, is, is, is equivalent to another number, Aleph 1, Bet 2, Gimel 3, so on and so forth. And then you, when you put these words together, like you just did, Samich, Vav, Dalid, those three Hebrew letters, Sod, which refers to Kabbalah, the secrets, um, is the same as 70. So uh-huh. your books are filled with these incredible gematrias, these numerical equivalencies, and, and that give these deeper insights into the text of the Torah. Um, your website, even, I saw, <laughs> has a search engine for the entire Tanakh for gematria. Now, you know, 
there is pushback. Uh, sometimes when I, um, in my, you know, maybe not in my uh, MJE life, there's a lot of respect kind of um, from my students for a lot of these things I haven't really studied. But I don't know, from the yeshiva world in which I was raised, sometimes I get a little rolling of the eyes when I quote a gematria. They're like, oh, come on, that's so convenient. And sometimes the gematrias aren't perfect. They're a little one-off. And then you have to give another little Dvar Torah to explain why it's a little one-off. <laughs> what, why do you think, <laughs> I'm just thinking of one of my sons right now, um, who's like, uh, he loves, he's, he studies a lot of Kabbalah and Hasidus, but like somehow the gematria thing just seems a little too convenient for him. Why do you think this is? And what would you say um, to someone like that that's a little cynical about the significance of gematria and, and our belief that it can illuminate um, this kind of divine design within the Torah? Because I, I think one of the reasons we're attracted to gematrias to these numerical equivalences because it seems like hidden within the text, there's something like, oh, no human being could have come up with that, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. And and it's like a little of a trigger to uh, divinity. And we're all looking for divinity in our lives, in our personal lives. And we're looking for it, some kind of evidence in the Bible that this mm -hmm. comes from a higher place. It wasn't just written by a bunch of men. You know, um, what, what can you tell us about gematrias that, that, that bespeak that? Okay, so... I would say if someone, especially if someone is learned and looks down at Gematria, I would say that's really a shame. Mm -hmm. Because if you look in the Talmud, the Talmud uses Gematria. Sure. If you look in Rashi, Rashi uses Gematria. In all of the... Uh, one of the most important commentaries is called the Balaturim from around a thousand years ago. He is, and he, he, we have to understand, he is the one who, who established the, the order that was adopted by the Shulchan Aruch for the, what's called the, the, the backbone of Jewish law today. So the Balaturim was a legalist. And yet he wrote a commentary that is highly Kabbalistic, and it's almost completely based on gematrias and numbers. So that's what I would say to someone who is learned, that, um, they're missing out on something that the sages gave us, something that our greatest of the commentaries gave us. It could be that, you know, People have, because maybe in, in, in uh, other like cultures, they play number games and people right. associate it with. But we have to understand, and again, if anyone looks at this commentary, the Balatorium, and there's a tremendous set in English put out yeah, by Art Scroll, which yeah, is phenomenal. But it's not just gematria. The entire Torah, there is, a, there is a numerical code running through the entire Torah, not just the gematrias. For example, you can see it in Art Scroll. Art Scroll is considered very um, middle of the road um, for people who are uh, less familiar with uh, Jewish thought 
and those who are more familiar, at the end of every Parsha, there's a little note that says how many verses are in that Parsha. And Rabbi David Feinstein makes a, like a, a drasha, makes a, a, an explanation. Why does this Parsha have these many verses? <clears throat> so it's not just gematrias. There are, like I said, there's a numerical code running to the Torah. And there's significance to how many letters in a verse, how many words in a verse, how many letters and words in a, in a, in a portion, how many in a book. In fact, in the, in, the, in the Talmud itself, it points out what is the middle letter of the Torah? What is the middle word of the Torah? Mm -hmm. and, and even in art school, sometimes they point out what's the middle letter of one of the books of the Torah. Now, this is, these are ancient traditions. So someone who is somewhat cynical about this, I would say that it's, it's misplaced. Mm -hmm. Now, just like anything, gematria can be misused and can uh, turn into kind of like a, a fun exercise. But that's not, that's not what gematria is. Gematria points out below the surface connections between ideas, concepts, and words that we wouldn't catch without it. Okay, so two questions on that. This is really excellent. This is so helpful, and you're explaining this so clearly for us. Um, number one is, do you think, therefore, it is uh, a basis for believing that the Torah comes from a higher place? Do you think that's a good... I'm not saying to put all of your faith in God and in Judaism in these gematrias, but do you think that should be part of, you know, seeing that there's this rhythm, that there's this code, these numbers? I guess you could be a little cynical and say, well, a, a group of mathematicians, if they wrote the Bible, if they sat down to come up with something, maybe they could have embedded within, um, you know, they could have embedded, with, embedded within some sort of text, some ancient text, some some numerical you know equivalence between words here and there um and and therefore maybe that's not a good basis for um for belief and then number two uh, i i assume that you only are going to accept gematrias that are brought down in jewish tradition not people making up their own you know oh i found a little phrase here that's got this number and it equivalent to that it's missing two numbers so we'll explain this like that that's probably what turns people off a little you're 100 percent right when when gematria isn't used correctly, and it's kind of like, mm -hmm. like we'll make we'll make it fit, yeah. right? For, the, but, for those of, for those of you listening and not watching, Rabbi Trugman is doing all sorts of contortions <laughs> with his hands and arms. Okay. Yeah, and I, I I agree. If someone would hear how how some people use it, but again, if we look at our ancient sources. And we, um, and we see the, 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 the deep richness that it, that it brings out in the text. I, I, I'll give an example, a microscope. If, if I look at my hand, so I see fingers. I can, I can actually see the tendons running through my hand. Sometimes you can see your blood vessels. 
Now, what happens if I put my hand under a microscope? All of a sudden, I can see the individual hairs that might be on my hand, the individual wrinkles that I can't see really sharply with my eye. Now, what happens if you uh, up the focus or the power of the microscope? All of a sudden, you see through the hand and you start seeing the cells. And what happens if you up, again, the power of the microscope? Then you'll see the incredible world within the cells. Mm -hmm. Up it again, then you see the atoms inside of wow. the... And then yeah. again, then you see the particles. So the numerical code in the Torah is like putting the text under a microscope. Wow. And all of a sudden you see things that you, you couldn't even imagine are there. I'm going to share something very, very, very personal is um, I am a Balchuva. I was not brought up religiously, far from it. Um, I came to it uh, in my mid-20s mm -hmm. and different people come into Torah either through the mind or something above the mind. In other words, through logic, proving the Torah, proving God, or for me is the more I learn Torah and Baruch Hashem with the incredible teachers that I had, and they started to, to show me what's below the English translation of the Torah, that is what convinced me of the divinity of the Torah, was understanding, as I began, this idea of pardes, the simple, the alluded to, the symbolic, and the mystical. And the more one delves into the Torah, below the surface, with the, the imagery of the microscope, all of a sudden we see the, what you said, that we're convinced that, that it can't be anything but divine. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, it almost sounds like the famous teleological argument for the existence of God, that the incredible complexity of the universe, of course, you can explain this like this and this like that, but to take just that the world is exactly where it is in relation, let's say, to the sun, not too far so we're not freezing mm -hmm. and not too close so we don't, God forget, burnt. And all of these other details of the makeup of the universe, of the physical universe, you know, to me, that's always been something which has been not evidence of God, but very hard to explain how human beings could have created this complexity that we have within our organisms, within the right. natural, which within plant life. So you're saying the same thing in terms of the Torah, that when you really take the Torah apart and you study it deeply, there's so many layers. Like I love the microscope analogy. So you keep seeing deeper and deeper. And the question is, as you get deeper and deeper, it becomes less um, reasonable, I guess. I don't want to mm -hmm. put words into your mouth. This is what it just becomes less and less reasonable that this could have been concocted, designed, created by people, even the greatest Einsteins in the world, sitting around and trying to develop these layers. 
you know, people will study Shakespeare and find depth in the writings of William Shakespeare and 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 and, and, and Greek philosophy and Plato, and you can analyze it and have commentaries and super commentaries on those teachings too. But you're saying that that there's a there's the microscope being shined onto the Torah just bespeaks a beyond human um, uh, creator, author, yes. if you will. You, very well said. Okay, because uh, because well you know because and 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 it's um again it's not we talked about this a little before we came on very briefly it's you know the existence of God or the divinity of the Torah isn't something I. I believe can be proven. You know, I'm an attorney by training. I don't, I don't think if anyone brought this evidence in to a court of law, we could convict someone, but we do have to, uh, we do have to make a case. And what's the best reasonable explanation for this depth? That's the question. You know, yeah. the problem, Rabbi Trugman, I didn't really expect to discuss this with you. What would you say to people? This is the problem is like, and the only, the only way you can get that glimpse of God in the Torah, you're saying, is by really going deeply, by yes. hitting parties. And the problem we have, at least in our culture in the United States here, and it's just, it's so superficial. And it's so, people don't receive a very deep Jewish education. And and then they're wondering, why can't I find any God in this? You know, because it's just so, right. it's so surface level. Um, Can I make a comment yeah. about that? Yeah, please, because uh, I don't even have a question. I'm just complaining. <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying is important. Over the last uh, 40 years, I've been working with young people, teenagers, and then for a couple of decades, college-age students. Mm -hmm. And because of uh, who we are, we were able to, to work with a lot of uh, non-religious uh, young Jews who were in Israel for the year. And they would come to us for Shabbat. For many of them, it was their first full um, uh, Shabbat, according to Jewish law. Mm -hmm. And of course, we made it very uh, beautiful and exciting and, and music and Karl Bach davening and, you know, the whole, the whole thing. But I at one point, I would, I would, I would say to them, I would ask them, how many of you are, are, are if, if they were before college, I would ask them, or if they were in a college, how many of you are planning to go to college? So virtually everyone would raise their hand. Or if they're in college, how many of you are planning to go ahead and getting your master's? Almost everyone raised their hand. And I said to them, most likely, most of you are, gonna, are, are really going to succeed. You're going to become professionals, business people. You're going to go on and get doctorates. You're going to you're going to be successful on, on a professional level, economic level, and you're you're going to be like at, at the top of your fields. But what about your Jewish education? Are you going to be stuck in third grade Sunday school? Yeah, the, the yeah. way that they taught you. Or, of course, at the whole Shabbos, I'm trying to teach right. them the deeper aspects of the Torah and saying, you owe it to yourself. If you're going to get a master's and a doctorate, you have to up your Jewish education also. Because if not, 
you'll be up here professionally at the top and you'll be back in Sunday school for your whole life because you didn't take the time to delve deeper. And I'm sure that's what your whole program is doing is trying to expose people to a uh, more than a third grade education because yeah the, 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 yeah. yeah the the depth the the gap between people's professional um career knowledge and their jewish knowledge is just becoming as widened significantly it's unbelievable um, and and it, it really makes judaism look uh very childish yes and um you know my rabbi of blessed memory rabbi joseph grimblatt uh used to argue this when it came to teaching women on a higher level also within the orthodox world he was a big advocate although he's a very came out of the more um ultra orthodox kind of community but felt because he had so many congregants that were so successful in 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 medicine and in law and in finance and and you have a woman who's got a doctorate in physics and 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 a third and she's not being taught even the orthodox community at some point they were not being taught sophisticated deep enough torah so even the torah to them also looked very silly it looked childish almost you know yeah. and yeah and um you know so that's our i guess that's our challenge is to make enough of a case so that people will want to look at it deeply and because you have to spend time you can't really if you want to understand something right. deeply it can't happen overnight it can't happen in a quick clip you know um <laughs> that's why i'll just i'll just mention because I came back to my Judaism because of being exposed to the deeper dimensions of the Torah. Before mm-hmm. I before I even knew Alavbet or the basics of Jewish law, I was exposed to the deeper understandings which drew which drew me in. So in all of my all of my books and my my videos and my my teaching, like I go straight to the heart of things, straight to the yeah. depths, with the hope that it, it will awaken a certain amazement um, about about the Torah, and that's why, uh, even even though I'm, I'm far from an expert in in all of the secular arts and sciences and disciplines. I really have made an effort to kind of keep up because there's such an incredible interconnectedness between modern psychology and the psychology in the Torah, between modern cosmology and physics and quantum physics and string theory and the basic uh, seven days of creation. Uh, many many books have been written about this. They're available. The the connections between what's written in the seven days of creation, which if you don't know, you read it as like 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 a kid's tale. Yeah. And yet, if you know the depths, the Torah was way ahead of modern physics. Modern physics is just catching up now. Yeah, and if anyone uh, anyone listening to this, I appreciate you sharing that, Rabbi Trugman, because I did a three part series on science and Judaism, specific specifically on cosmology. Mm-hmm. I interviewed three different rabbis, three people who actually wrote books on this, including Gerald Schroeder, very famous sure. uh, Genesis and the Big Bang, and I had um, 
Um, uh, bu- 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 I can't believe I'm blanking. Rabbi Aviezer? No, I didn't have Rabbi Aviezer, but I've written, okay. I've read his books. Um, uh, whatever, I can get you. You could, you could just go on Wild's cast and you'll see cosmology in the Torah. The three uh-huh. three uh-huh. different. Um, uh, N- uh, Natan Slifkin was one of them, but also, um, um, it, it's, 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 it's really, it boggles the mind. Let, let me ask you a question though. Um, the, the, um, you often quote the Talmudic passage of Masa Avo Simon Labanim, which just finished the book of Genesis, that mm-hmm. what happened to the patriarchs is a, is a simon, is a sign uh, that things that happened to our forefathers were not, they're not just there. To, the Bible isn't just there to tell us stories, but it's, and these aren't just figures for emulation, but their deeds somehow engrave upon the Jewish psyche and on some level are determinative of, of Jewish history. Can, can you elaborate a little on that? Okay. So in my view, this subject is one of the most important for understanding the Torah. And the word that is critical here is archetypal. Mm-hmm. The people in the, the Torah, the stories in the Torah, the names of people and places, but especially the stories, these are all archetypal. What does archetypal mean? It's a type of energy that replays itself mm-hmm. in every generation in every person. In other words, when we read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, and Joseph and his brothers, and Moses, etc., etc., we're not only reading one-time stories of what happened a long time ago. And that's why I mentioned before this idea of the Alter Rebbe is to live with the times, to look in the Parsha and be able to recognize that the forces that are being talked about in this Parsha, in, in, in the portion of the Torah, they are right in front of our eyes and they're happening within us as well. So I, since you asked me, I'm going to take a number of examples from this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion, we begin a new book the book of Exodus, the book of Shemot. And here we begin with going down to Egypt. We become slaves. We are oppressed. God saves us through the agency of of Moses, Moshe, through 10 plagues. We come out of Egypt, we receive the Torah, we wander for 40 years, and the Torah ends as we're at the border to go into Israel. So if you go back a few portions in Genesis, you see when God said to Abraham, Lech lecha me'artzecha, me'moladetecha, me'beit avicha, ela aretz asherareka. Go out from your land, from your birthplace and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So Avram did so. He came to Israel, and almost immediately there was a famine. And he had to go down to Egypt, uh, Abraham and Sarah. They go down to Egypt. Pharaoh takes Sarah because she was beautiful, and 
God afflicted Pharaoh's house with a plague. Pharaoh called Avram and Sarah and said, leave. <laughs> he gave them riches and they came back to Israel. Now this, this is the probably the most classic example of the deeds of the fathers and mothers are assigned for the children because exactly what happened to Avram and Sarah as, as it were, individuals, becomes the entire storyline of everything that happened to Israel. We, we went down to Egypt because of a famine. And then we were, as it were, taken by Pharaoh and made into slaves. And instead of one plague, God visited ten. 10 plagues, and then we came out with great riches, and we came back to Israel. Now, on a deeper level, it's explained in, in Kabbalah that this whole storyline of going down into Egypt and becoming enslaved and then coming out and receiving the Torah and then wandering for 40 years and then coming to Israel is actually a paradigm for every soul that comes from, we'll call it the higher worlds, comes down into a physical material world and especially into a body and then has to figure out, the soul has to figure out how to operate within the, the very narrow confines. Now the word Egypt in Hebrew, Mitzrayim, comes from the word Metzar, which means a narrow place. So for a soul that was in the upper worlds, in a, in a spiritual setting, to come down into a physical body and a physical material world is the ultimate of being in a confined space. Mm. And then the Torah be becomes our guidebook, our instruction manual of how does the soul learn to live in coordination with the body? How does, how does a soul, which is a spiritual entity, deal with a physical material world? And the 40 years in the desert becomes the journey of each and every person. Wow. So here we see the same story on many different levels. And, 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 and just because it's, I mean, this is beautiful. So, and, and just if you don't mind me jumping in, just because these, they seem, these are archetypes, these stories are archetypical, the, the patriarchs, the matriarchs themselves are archetypical. That might lead someone to say, oh, this stuff is not really, it didn't really happen. Was there an Abraham and Sarah? Was there an Egypt or anything like that? It's just all a metaphor to communicate certain, you know, deeper ideas about our own personal existence in this world. Um, but but you're saying that it could be both. I mean, there's nothing that contradicts that. Meaning, right, no, we that we understand that the simple storyline is it did happen. Mm -hmm. But I'll give you I'll give an example that maybe would would be helpful. Parents and children. Children have the DNA of their parents. It goes a long way in determining the parameters of 
height, eye color, hair color, tendencies, etc. And then we have nature and nurture. The way that we are brought up leaves an incredible uh, uh, mark on us, a, an impression. Now, sometimes we rebel against that impression, and sometimes we follow that impression or somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. But especially as we get older and, and we look more in a mature way at our relationship with our parents and we see how much of them is in us <laughs> for the good and the bad. <laughs> so that's what's archetypal. So when we're talking about these figures in the Torah, they stamped our physical DNA, but also our spiritual DNA. They mm -hmm. paved the way. And, and, and just like in, in our experience, we can do something that changes our reality, the reality of people around us, and if, if we're, let's say, in, in a position of power, can change a community, a state, a country, and the world. In other words, people's actions have results. Now, when we're talking about these archetypal figures, their every thought, speech, and action left an indelible mark on all of history. And I'll, I'll just share because I'm working on my next book, and it's called One Was Avraham. It's from a verse from Isaiah. One was Avraham, meaning unique was Avraham, and the subtitle is going to be called Insights into the Most Influential Person in History. Mm. And I want to show in the life of Avraham everything he said everything that the Torah records that he did left a mark on all of history, not just Jewish history, because Christianity comes sure. out of Judaism. Islam comes out of Judaism. And Western world comes from but, the but, combination. But, but, but when you say leaves a mark, like I, I think we would all agree that he had a tremendous influence, just like our parents have a tremendous influence on us. Where is the room for free will then? In other words, because if you take Masa Avot Siman Labanim to its extreme, the idea that whatever the matriarchs did, uh, you know, sort of they embedded within future Jewish history certain realities. But so where, where you know, are we just sort of playing out some, you know, pre-scripted, um, you know, document or story that's, you know, or you know, where does our own um, okay. ag agency and activity fit into that? So, of course, your question, the, Maimonides, the Rambam called like the paradox of paradoxes <laughs> of how does free will and God's omniscience and God's divine providence work together? This would be a whole podcast in of itself. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but but there, there is a place that we have to understand that they're both operating at the same time. Mm -hmm. Judaism is, is actually um, almost fanatic 
about belief in free will mm -hmm. and taking responsibility for our actions, but at the same time recognizing that God's providence is an overarching right. uh, influence in every person's life, in, in, in history, in the whole cosmos. It's one of the great mysteries. How do they work together? Like I said, truthfully, we would have to have a whole podcast. Yeah. No, no. yeah. But I want, I, can I give one example? Yeah, please, please. So we could see it. When we received the Torah on Sinai, so the Torah records that we said, Na'aseh we will do and we will hear. Meaning, we didn't know what was going to be in the Torah. At that point, we had so much trust that whatever would be in the Torah would be for our good. So we said, we will do, and then hopefully we'll come to understand, and then we'll hear. So that's given as like the, the ultimate statement of, of, of free will. We're choosing mm -hmm. to accept the Torah. We're choosing mm -hmm. to accept the Torah. But then a, mid, a strange Midrash comes along, because it says that when we receive the Torah, the people stood at uh, around the bottom of the mountain, Tachtit mm Hahar. -hmm. And so the Midrash says a strange thing, that God, as it were, picked the mountain over our head and said, if you accept the Torah today, good. And if not, I'm going to drop the, the mountain on your head. Yeah. This will be your burial place. Right, because the word tachtit means underneath. So right. how you stand underneath the mountain, it must be the mountain was over their heads. Right. Right. But so, so the question is, wait a minute. We just said na seven nishma. We, we are accepting it. We're, we're, uh, the Midrash also said, who told human beings the secret of angels <laughs> that, 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 that will do and then will hear? Why, why do we have this Midrash that God held it over our head? So one of the answers is, is that, yes, each and every one of us has free will, and, we, and we're responsible for our actions. At the same time, the Jewish people has a certain destiny that's beyond our individual choices. And God was trying to show us it's very good that you are exercising your free will to accept the Torah I'm giving you. But I want you to know also that mm. there is a bigger picture here that you're part of. And the bigger picture is, is that at some level, God, God would have figured out a way for us to do this. Is that it? In other words, he's holding the mountain over their heads. What's the image our sages are trying to depict that, you know, like that we were forced to keep, you know, because it says, you know, either accept the Torah or, you know, sort of meet your maker. So what's, what, what's, what are you suggesting that the, that the sages are trying to complement what the Torah says of Nasa Vinishma, which is free will, we want to do this. We're into this. We're choosing this for our lives. They want to complement that idea with, um, this is meant to be. This is yes, going to happen with or without you. At a certain you. level, you don't have a choice. Mm. In other words, the example I'll give, which is the, the, the history as it's unfolding now, 
Right now, there's, let's say, uh, there's more than 6 million Jews in Israel. Mm -hmm. And I'll just take for myself, I chose to come to Israel. Israel is a land of either refugees or people who have chosen to come. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, that was probably one of the most important decisions I ever made. But then you start reading the prophets. And the prophet says, it, all of them said, in what are called the end of days, God will bring you back from the four corners of the world. And he will bring you back to Israel. And the desert will become green again and productive. And Jerusalem and all the cities will be rebuilt. And I could, I could, I could go on. So, so then we could ask ourselves, every person who exercised their free will to come to Israel, but there's also simultaneously a bigger picture happening here. There's a bigger picture. We are coming from the four corners of the world, and this is the mystery of how we exercise our free will, and yet there's a certain destiny that is played out right now in front of our very eyes. That is the reality of Israel right now. Anyone who reads Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micha, Hosea, all of the prophets said the same thing. And here, let's say 300 years ago, someone's in Poland under tremendous oppression. It would be hard to understand these prophecies. When is it going to happen? But we're living it now. Unbelievable. We are living so, in it. And that is the interconnectedness so yeah, of yeah, free okay. will and, and Jewish destiny. Beautiful. And you know, what I'm seeing a common theme, Rabbi, that you, you seem to have is, is that these things are not contradictory. You know, some people would say either you have free will or God's running the show. And what you're trying to demonstrate here is that both are true. Either we yep. understand the verse rationally or mystically. No, you can do. You can read them. You could read those same verses both ways. By yes. the way, I I, I will uh, just share if if it's okay. My rabbi, blessed memory, Rabbi Grimblot, um, had a very different take on that medrash. I mean, there's there are a lot of different ways to go uh -huh. with that, but uh -huh. I just think you find it interesting. He said also he recognizes a certain conflict between the biblical text that has the Jewish people willingly accepting the Torah, Nasev and Nishma. We will do it and we will hear. And then the Medrash, this part of rabbinic literature that's ha that has the mountain held over their heads and forcing them. Mm -hmm. So he says, he says they're both true. He said, yeah. because when the Jew, they, well, he gave a little of a different twist. Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you've heard this idea before, but he said that the Jewish people, when they stood at Sinai to receive the Torah, and Hashem said, I'm going to give you my Torah. Would you like it? So imagine ourselves, we were slaves, our parents were slaves, our grandparents were slaves. This man, Moses, comes along, performs all these miracles, you know, brings your oppressors to their knees. The 10 plagues are splitting the Red Sea. You see all of this. And that same God then comes to you and says, hey, would you like my Torah? What are you going to say? <laughs> of course, you're going to say yes. You really have free will? There's no free will. What that Medrash is trying to say, and in a sense, contextually, God was holding the mountain over their heads. And uh, that you, th you think they that. had free wills, but like if you and I were put in that kind of scenario and that same God, after seeing all those miracles, God was so obvious. They live in such a sort of God intoxicated society. What else would you say? 
And that explains the famous uh, line at the end of Megillat Esther, the Purim story, when it says, Kimu Vikiblu, that the Jewish people after the miracle of Purim accepted God. And it's very enigmatic. It doesn't say really what they accepted. The Talmud there explains, Kimu Mashikiblu Kvar, they accepted what they had already at Harsinai. Why? Because the Purim story is one of those episodes in Jewish history that doesn't really have God so obvious. No overt miracles take place in the Purim story. There was a anti-Semitic prime minister. We had a queen in the a Jewish queen in the palace. You know, God's name is mentioned nowhere. That's not just purely symbolic. So the idea is that if they could see God in that situation, then they were really accepting Judaism into their lives out of free will, not because any mountain was hanging over there, not because God was so clear. It's just a different way of explaining. Uh, it. That's a beautiful explanation. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. Mom is beautiful. Beautiful. So I, beautiful. And it helped. I appreciate it. It was Rabbi Joseph Grimblood of the, he was my rough growing up in Forest Hills, mm-hmm. Queens. He was a big, big Torah scholar. And he, he used to, he, that was his take on it. And, and it helps because a lot of people say, you know, Rabbi, I would believe in everything if I just saw miracles. If I just saw God clear, is I, is it, then I would believe, of course, first of all, it's not so true because we would still struggle. Jewish people saw God very clearly and they still worshiped the golden calf afterwards and they still spoke uh, the, the incident with the spy. So it's not the, but uh, I, I always say that we live in a day and age where we really could choose. We really could choose. Yes. But I love the way, I love the way you put that, that you have to balance that our belief and choice with divine providence, that God has a plan and that somehow God is orchestrating things at the same time. Let me just ask you one last question. There's so much to talk to you about, Rabbi. This has been amazing. Um, you're very into music and, and uh, Andrew uh, shared with me that you've produced nine albums of original yep. music. Um, and one of the 20 books that you've written, and by the way, anyone who's listening to this, you must get, any one or many of Rabbi Trogan's books, they're incredible. You wrote a book called The Mystical Power of Music. And we all know that music has this kind of universal way of binding people together. How would you describe its almost mystical or divine quality music, uh, as opposed to just something that's just so catchy that people just really like and that people can relax to it and enjoy it? What's so deep about music? Okay, so... First of all, I'm going to share something. I'm sure you're going to appreciate this, and hopefully your listeners also. It was approximately 22, 23 years ago that I spoke at the Manhattan Jewish Experience. It was quite new then. Mm -hmm. It was quite new. And uh, I spoke on this topic. The mystical power of music. Of music, yes. Oh and well, we we're, we're only twenty four years old, so we were very. Okay, new. no, it was it was like I said, it was yeah. it was very new, it was very new, and um, uh, I, I spoke there and I, I I did the subject you just asked about. Afterwards, so um, Menachem Butler, I want to mention him. Menachem just got married. Butler, I just know got that. married. I know yeah. that. So he came up to me um, very intense, intensely and said, you have to write this up as a book. Wow. You have to. And on the spot, I said, okay. 
And I did. <laughs> so that's incredible. Wow. In my, introduction, right. in my introduction, I said that he is the unsung hero of, of the of book. Of that book. Yeah. What, so what I, I should have I should have I should have phrased the question differently. I should have said, Rabbi, when you spoke at MJE in the very beginning <laughs> years and you talked about <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, that that was the kernel. So I'm gonna try to give it over in like five minutes. Mm-hmm. An incredible idea. And that is, every morning we say, Baruch Shamar Olam. Blessed is the one who spoke and the world came into being. So this is coming from uh, Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, where they say that God created the world through 10 expressions. What are the 10 expressions? The 10 times that God said, and God said, let there be X, and there was X. The first one is, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. These are called the 10 expressions, but the, the important thing is the tradition that God spoke the world into being. This mm. teaches us on a very deep level the power of our words. Now, I'm skipping a lot of steps here, but... One of the books of the Zohar is called the Tikkune Zohar. The Tikkune Zohar takes the word Bereshit and switches around the letters, permutes the letters in different ways. There's 70 chapters, all about the word Bereshit. This is also one of the things that, if you, if you study this, can convince you of the divinity of the Torah. Just in the mm-hmm. first word, that you have an entire book that more or less hints to the who, where, when, why, and how of creation, all in one word, six letters. So one of the permutations in the book is Shir Ta'ev. The, the letters of Bereshit spell a passionate song. Mm-hmm. And the, the Midrash, Midrash Rabbah, says the following, uh, Bereshit Rabbah, that a very enigmatic statement of why God created the world. I'll say it in Hebrew and then English. That God had a passion to have a dwelling place in the lower worlds. So the first word, Bereshit, is hiding this permutation of a passionate song. Creation is a passionate song. But another permutation of Bereshit is Shirat Av, the song of the Father. One of the ways we, we refer to God is Avinu Shabbat our Father in Heaven. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King. The, the word Av, Father, is Aleph Bet. The Aleph Bet, the alphabet. So you could read it, Shirat Aleph Bet. Through the song of the Aleph Bet, through that, God created the world. So now, instead of just saying that God spoke the world into being, we have this idea that God sang the world into being. Mm. Now let's jump one more step. Again, I'm missing a whole lot here, but I'm trying to get to the kernel of it. In 
if you look at what music is, music are vibrations. Whether you pluck a string, you hit a key on a piano, you blow through a flute, scientifically, what you are creating are vibrations and frequencies. That is what music is. Those frequencies and those vibrations create sound waves. The sound waves go into our eardrum and, and then the brain translates what it is hearing. So music is movement, vibrations, frequencies. Now, if we look at physics, so one of the great discoveries of Einstein was that all matter is energy. All matter is energy. So you look at a what appears to be a, uh, a, a, a an unmovable object, the table we're sitting at or the bookshelves behind you. Well, if you again, if we have this microscope and you look inside, it's a frenetic world of energy. Mm. Now, they have found that light are waves and particles. Music are waves. And then they found it's not just light, all matter within the atom. And when you're saying, when you're saying, I'm sorry, music are waves, meaning because music you explained before are vibrations. Yeah, which um, create sound waves. Right. Which and create sound waves are just, an, are just another form of energy, basically. Yes, and, the, and they're energy. But if you look in any atom, it's inside the atom is a frenetic world of movement, mm -hmm. vibrations, and frequencies. Then you go to string theory, which is now positing that the smallest particles within the particles within the particles are vibrating strings. So I'll bring a quote from Brian Greene, one of the you know top physicists today, and he's not alone with the quote I'm going to say from him. Many of the top physicists say the same thing because these the idea of string theory, which they can't prove yet, but there's no instrument that could actually see these strings. But it it's the same thing what's happening with an atom without string theory, is that the movement, the vibrations, the frequencies of the particles within an atom are creating the reality of the forces of that atom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Brian Greene said, like this, I'm paraphrasing, but almost saying exactly. He said, to use the metaphor of music to explain the physical uh, makeup of the world has taken on a startling reality. And many of the top physicists um, go along with this. They, they, what, what used to be called by the ancients the harmony of the spheres, the idea that everything is moving in a harmonious symphony has taken on a startling reality. And therefore, if we put all of this together,
And this is why I wrote this book. I wrote the book to answer just a simple question. Why does music affect us so much? What is the power of music that it's a universal language? It touches the heart and the mind and the soul like almost nothing else can. So we can understand because the nature of the physical and spiritual worlds are nothing more than music. And so when we listen to music, we're turned on to music. On a deep level, we're tuning in to the mm. fabric of the universe. And we're turning into the fabric of the upper worlds also. In our, in our morning prayers, we talk a lot about how the angels are singing and praising every day. We connect ourselves to the upper worlds in song. And unfortunately, most people are used to reciting their prayers. Let's say Psuke de Zimra, the verses of song. King David, David Amelech, wrote 150 psalms, but he wrote them as songs. They were all yeah, songs. Yeah, they're poems. You know, and, and, and I was just... One more thing, one more thing. Yeah, 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 yeah please. The last mitzvah in the Torah. Here we saw that in the first word of the Torah is the word song. Also, if you take the word Israel, Yisrael, and you permute the letters, it's Shir Kel, the song of God. Mm. We are the song right. of God. We're the messengers of God for his oneness in the world. But the last mitzvah in the Torah is the, the, the mitzvah to write a safer Torah. But the sages explain how, how do we get that? Because God taught Moshe the song Ha'azinu. It's the, I think, third last parsha in the Torah. One of the last mm -hmm. parshas, And it says, write down the song and teach it to the people. So it sounds like write down the song Ha'azinu and teach it to the people. But the sages say, we learn from this that the whole Torah is called song. And the mitzvah here is to write the whole Torah. But the, the, the important thing is the Torah itself is called song. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So and now and if we I, come I, together, the to yeah. uh, one last thing. We <laughs> in the Zohar it says God looked into the Torah and created the world. So if the Torah is called song, the the first word in the Torah is song, the last mitzvah is song, the whole thing is called song. God looks into the Torah, he creates the world, which is song. And we can understand it on a mystical level, but also on a modern physics level. The fabric of the universe is truly music. And so when we connect with music, we are connecting with with God's song. Yeah, the that, song of God. That, that is so magnificent. Um, I encourage everybody to actually get the book. But thank you for that. That I wouldn't say a summation, but that really uh, incredible pearl of wisdom. I would also direct you, Rabbi, to uh, one of my friends and teachers, Rabbi David Aaron, um, who likes to talk about when he was younger. A lot of people have said this to me, too, that when they're at a musical concert 
and you know the all the lights go out and people they used to take a match but now they use their phones right, right. everyone has this like and they're all doing this like what's going on there it feels like a big almost like shul experience you know where like everybody's coming together it is no coincidence just hearing the Torah you just shared about how song really reflects the the physical makeup of the universe particles within the atom and the vibrations and the frequencies and the sounds how why why it's probably no coincidence that people can come together and feel some kind of unity you know my son is a my, my son is a musician um and does a lot of these musical meditations in israel my son yosef my oldest and i asked him what he loves so much about what he does and he just says that i feel a sense of unity with other people when I get together, when we do these kinds of kumsitzes or whatever it is with music. So I, I imagine that's not coincidental or incidental, that that's happening because the method through which, as you're describing, the method through which of, of creating those sounds is the very fabric of the universe and, and yes. reflecting God, God's own oneness and unity. Absolutely. Uh, so, wow, that's unbelievable. All right, that's a book I got to get. Rabbi, I, I could literally, <laughs> and I hope we can do this again sometime. Uh, I, I would love it. <laughs> uh, it would be such an honor. Do you get to, do you come to New York? Do you ever get back to uh, exile um, over here, diaspora? <laughs> I, I, I've been in and out of New York somewhere between 40 and 50 times. Right, I'm sure. Um, but recently, because uh, my daughter was living in New York for many, many mm -hmm. years, and she just moved to Philadelphia. <laughs> so um, how often I'll get to New York, but Baruch Hashem for uh, Zoom and how we're talking now. So um, if we well, can't well, if, meet if, in if, person. If, yeah, 100%. Well, if there's a way, you let us know because it would be such an honor to host you in person um, so our students can, can get to meet you also. But I will keep been, that in mind. If yeah, I'm coming please, to New please. York, I will, I will definitely keep that in mind. This was, this was it would really, be my really powerful. So please, everyone, make sure that you get a copy of any one of Rabbi Trugman's uh, incredible books. He's also uh, got a YouTube channel. Uh, he's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. He's gotten millions of visits. And from the conversation that we just had, you can understand why. Uh, get any one of his over 20 books and his original music. And Rabbi, thank you so, so much for coming on the Wildscast and just sharing your perspective uh, and helping us really see the authenticity and the divinity in, in our Judaism and in Torah in specifics. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi. This was really, really I enjoyed special. it immensely.